Hello, Select 5 listeners. For the very first time on the show, but maybe not the last, we're going to take you on a little field trip. In the episode you're about to hear, we had the privilege of talking to a Bay Area musician on his own turf. His turf being Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco, a place where probably some of your favorite albums were laid down and where jazz funk history was made. You're listening to Select Five, a series where I chat with creatives from the Bay Area and beyond about five songs that matter to them. I'm your host, Pam Torno, and usually, usually we record this podcast at Barshiru in Oakland, but not today. Today, we're recording someplace extra special, a legit landmark in American music history, but I still brought a little Barshiru with me in the form of its co-owner and musical director, Dan Gar. Dan, say hello to our listeners. Hello. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Dan and I are coming to you from the longest-running multi-room recording studio in the Bay Area, the legendary Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco, which, up until 1980, had been known as Wally Hyder Studios. And if you don't know it by either of those names, you know it by the multitude of hit albums that were recorded here. Albums from The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Neil Young, Santana, Van Morrison, Credence, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Tupac, Digital Underground, Green Day, just to name a few. Just a few. And we're going to go into a few more in a bit. Suffice it to say, there is not enough time in our little podcast to tell the full story of this celebrated studio. So we're going to do what we do on Select 5 and give you a unique perspective on Hyde Street Studios' history in five funky recordings. Today's selections were chosen by a musician whose own personal studio is right here where we're sitting, which is Studio D. His name is Joe Begale, though some of you might know him better as Otis McDonald. He's a producer, a singer-songwriter, and a multi-instrumentalist whose futuristic funky tunes have delighted the YouTube generation for the past few years. In fact, his latest album, People Music, was made in collaboration with his YouTube fans. It's been a long time, baby. I've been waiting for this night. You slipped off your dress. I think I better hold on tight. I feel your fingers tracing up and down my spine. I let those thoughts run wild in my turning pen. Cause when it's over, girl. You can buy People Music on vinyl, or you can listen to it digitally on a multitude of streaming services. Joe was generous enough to invite us here today for this conversation. Joe, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course, of course. a great intro. <laughs> I try. I practice. I practice a lot. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, How many times did you do that? Um... Well, I had to wait till till Steve left the house <laughs> so that I could do it in private, and he wouldn't laugh at me. Yeah, but you know, maybe like four or five times. Yeah, my I, my practice sessions are usually when I'm like rocking my son to sleep. You know, I, last night I did it in front of my wife, and I was just like almost embarrassed to sing in front of her, and she was like, "Really? You Still? do this for a living?" <laughs> 
Yeah. I was like, I know, but this is like a personal thing between me and Brent. Oh. <laughs> that's cute. Well, that's yeah. nice to know that you still get nervous around your wife. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> she gives me butterflies. <laughs> um, okay, so I've gotten to know you as a live performer. I've, I've seen you gig around uh, the past couple of years in varying ensembles, including with the Jazz Mafia. Um, and I didn't actually know that you had amassed this digital following. Tell us how you built your online fan base on YouTube. Yeah, it's kind of an unorthodox approach. Um, back in 2014, um, some people that work at YouTube that were creating the first uh, royalty-free library contacted me and asked if I was interested in submitting some music that um, could be distributed for free uh, and also it would be or it would remain royalty-free. Um, one of the intriguing parts of that was they... Uh, well, one, we're going to pay me for my work, which was pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, and two, uh, they were going to give me credit for it. And YouTube being the largest streaming platform in the world, I thought, you know, it would be silly of me to not try to make some really cool music um, with the goal that, you know, some people would like the music and use it in their videos. And hopefully uh, a certain percentage of the people that see those videos would want to seek out the music even further and uh, and then I built this whole YouTube channel and branded it and came up with a logo and a totally different name because I thought it would be, um, I don't know, I thought it was a, a unique type of distribution and something yeah. that had never really been done before. And, um, you know, I wanted to see if this was something that could actually work as a career. And, uh, yeah, and it totally worked. And, and, you know, millions of videos started featuring that music within like a year. And there was like billions of views of that, those videos with that music. And, uh, then slowly but surely just, uh, all these subscribers started coming to the Otis McDonald YouTube channel. And then, uh, that was the first step. And then after that, I took all this music and I moved it on to Spotify, you know, a more mm -hmm. quote unquote traditional listening platform or whatever. And, uh, and yeah, within like a month or two, there was like a million plays on that. And so I was like, okay, well this is, this is something that works. Um, so yeah. when you were, you, when, when you were making music for YouTube, it wasn't, uh, you didn't treat it like a one for the meal, one for the real. I think I got that from you, Dan. Yeah, that's good. It's like, what, so, you know, you make something, to, you know, one thing over here to yeah. make money, to be able to fund the, the creative output Your that passion you, you deeply great. I'm gonna care keep about. That one. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, I, I knew that most people's approach would be to, to just get the paycheck and, and just make some background music. But knowing how powerful YouTube is, and it literally is the biggest streaming service in the world, even though people don't necessarily think of it as a music streaming platform, but that is what it is, you know, mm -hmm. in addition to it being a video streaming platform. Um, so I, I thought it would be uh, just a really, really cool way to get the music out there. And if I had kept that music to myself, um, at the moment, there wasn't like a huge fan base for me, so nobody would have heard it, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and believe me, every time I finished a tune, I wrestled with the fact of, oh man, should I give this to YouTube or should I keep this for myself? But ultimately, I mean, it all still comes back to me because it was my name that's attached to it. And YouTube's not necessarily trying to profit off of it other than, you know, the monetization partnerships that everybody has. So I'm able to monetize off of it too yeah. by running ads in front of it. Um, but you could monetize off of it too. And who am I to really punish fans for 
using my music in their videos you know it's like that seems totally silly to me yeah um so rather than hold stuff back i in some ways i that would almost be like telling myself that i wasn't going to make anything better than that and i never wanted to do that and so i just figured get it out of me and then move on to the next thing so how long have you lived in Bay Area then? I've been here 17 years. Okay. And then was there something specific about the Bay's music scene or the music history that drew you in? Yeah. The the funk scene from the 70s. I, I, I've always been into music that makes me at least want to tap my feet, let alone dance. And I think when I was like in fourth or fifth grade is the first time I ever heard um, Chameleon by Herbie Hancock. You know, this is the funkiest thing I ever heard. And that kind of led me on my journey into funk music. And just studying that music, I started to realize that this particular style, which is also known as linear funk, was all coming from the same place, which was the Bay Area. And it all was traced back to Sly and the Family Stone, uh, particularly albums like There's a Riot Going On and Fresh. Like the very first song on Fresh uh, in time is uh, the probably the earliest representation of that kind of Bay Area linear thing. So linear is like in, in, rather than playing music that is predominantly driven by like a backbeat so i mean james brown talks about the one right everything's on the one the emphasis is on the one which is the beginning of the phrase but what happens on the snare drum is what's called the backbeat which had been around since rock and roll music and blues music um but if you trace if you go back to like new orleans in like the mid to late 60s guys like Zigaboo Modalis from The Meters was taking the same approach that they would have in second line music where the drum set was broken apart into multiple drummers playing individual instruments. He would take that same type of syncopation and bring it to the drum set. So rather than just like playing the traditional backbeat, rock and roll, drum beat or funk beat, you know, funk wasn't even really a thing. He started just kind of playing around with all the syncopation, but it still made you dance the same way. So when you started to really hear that in funk music, it wasn't really James Brown, although they kind of dabbled with it with things like Cold Sweat, with like moving the beat around a little bit. But it was really like something like In Time by Sly and the Family Stone. So when that song starts, you hear a backbeat, but then when it kicks into the main groove on the verse, the drums are all over the place. By the making and the tasting of disaster and time. The 
bass is in different spots, the organ is different spot. It's so crazy, but it is so undeniably funky. It still makes you dance. And then you listen to people like Tower of Power. They would do the same exact thing. And then Herbie Hancock would start to do it on album, the album Thrust with songs like Actual Proof. And uh, yeah, it was just like this crazy, weird approach. It's like a jazzier approach to funk. And I, I hate to, to say that it's exclusively a jazz thing because it's not. It, if anything, it's probably influenced by like Afro-Cuban music and Latin music and but uh, it's 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 undeniably funk music. <laughs> so speaking of undeniably funk music, do you want to talk a little bit about your new album? Sure. Uh, did you record all of? Did you play all the instruments yourself on this album? I yeah, for the most part, I I didn't play the horns on the on the album, and I didn't play the strings or the you know the, the string trio that's on the record. Um, but I played keyboards and bass and guitar and drums, um, and I sang all the vocals. Um, and I played some of these drum machines over here and then I, uh, yeah, I produced it and mixed it and recorded and I engineered it all too. Wow. Yeah. And talk about how your YouTube fans helped you out, pick the, pick the songs for this album. Yeah, that was really fun. So, uh, a couple of friends of mine who were also business partners, uh, we started a label track tribe. I started talking to my buddies and I, I, I was I was talking about how much I enjoyed choose your own adventure novels when I was a kid. We were like, well, what if we just put out fifteen tracks and have the fans choose the songs? So I started putting out a new snippet every week for fifteen weeks. Um, but I just wanted each centerpiece to be a different person because um, uh, I already knew I wanted the album to be called People Music because the people were going to choose the tracks. And uh, so it wasn't I, partially inspired by Herbie Hancock. Oh, it definitely was okay. inspired by Herbie <laughs> Hancock. The title of it, yeah, yeah, for sure. I uh, put out this video of me walking down the street in Brooklyn that I recorded last fall, and uh, and just put out a video to the fans saying, "Hey, I'm going to put out these snippets, and at the end of the 15 weeks, um, I'm going to let." you know, the views and likes and comments all kind of tally up and analyze, um, you know, all those different numbers and see what songs are actually the 10 most popular tunes. And then I have to figure out a way to make it feel like they are related to each other. So it was like having all these pieces to a puzzle and then finishing the tunes and bringing them together um, as one whole thing. And and now that's that's the album. People wow. Music. I like that democratic approach. That's pretty cool. How did you have the opportunity to move into this studio? I found it on Craigslist. No. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it, it, I refound it on Craigslist is what I should say. I I was recording the strings to uh, the last song on my record, Holiday, at another local studio, Different Fur. I was there recording with this great engineer who used to be one of the engineers at Fantasy Studios. And since they had closed down, I asked him if he wanted to um, assist in engineering the string section because I just loved his work. And when we were over there setting up, he told me that this place had become available. And I was like, wow, man, that's like a Bill, that's a Bill Putnam room. And I had actually never been in this building. I just knew the history of it. And uh, he's like, yeah, but somebody has taken it, and so it's not available anymore. No. Was, oh, shoot. And then I was back east visiting my parents. Um, my wife and I have a, a one-year-old, so back then he was you know, only a couple of months old. And we had a, a, a two-bedroom apartment. I, uh, 
I started thinking like, well, I'm going to have to find a place to have a studio. Uh, so I just got on Craigslist and typed in studio, music, <laughs> music studio. Just and it was the, you typed in Studio the, D. Yeah, <laughs> the very first thing that popped up was this. And I got on the phone. And I'm in Rochester, New York at the time. And I call and um, Jack, who's the studio manager, answers. I'm like, hey, is that studio still available? And he's like, yeah, there's one other person looking at it. He's like, but I can show it to you. And I was like, I'm going to be back in like five days. Can you like hold off on signing with somebody? And he was like, sure. And uh, so I came over with my wife and our son in his stroller and this room was totally empty and i was like yeah this is exactly where i want to be and um and he got excited uh, jack the manager because the other people that were looking at it i don't think were musicians they were like a tech startup and they just wanted an office space Oof. so what? this wasn't even going to be a music studio oh, no. you yeah. saved it yeah you did and so they offered me the lease that night and and so we did it well thank the gods you did yeah hell yeah, yeah. man i love this place <laughs> it's amazing it's pretty nice yeah uh feel free to geek out about the tuning of the room and the acoustic treatments Oh, sure. Okay. So, yeah. So, all right. Wally Heider, um, who opened this building in 1969, he, um, Wally Heider was a great recording engineer who worked very closely with um, the, like, the godfather of studio design, at least in American studios, Bill Putnam. Um, and he, uh, Wally Heider was working as an engineer down at his studios in LA, Bill Putnam Studios, um, most notably United Western which is where the Mamas and the Papas and the Beach Boys made Pet Sounds. And they did all those records in this in the room known as Studio 3. Um, and that room became notorious for just having a very tight sound, but also a beautiful live sound. Tight meaning there's not any ugly reflections. Sometimes that comes with like a really big room. But Studio 3 had kind of a smaller and um it's like a narrow and long uh room and that was like the vibe of it and uh so everybody loved to go there and wally Hyder loved that room so much that when he was opening up his own studios in san francisco he the last thing he did at studio three is he brought an architect in there and measured all the dimensions and then they cloned that studio in this building and that's this room that's studio d nice so if you look at pictures of studio three in Studio D, they're like they're totally uh, a mirror image of each other. <laughs> other than the um, the you know other stuff that's like on the wall, like the rock wall is not at Studio Three; it's only in Studio D. And then that curtain that's in the back, that big theater curtain, that was Creedence Clearwater Revival's curtain from their rehearsal space, oh, really? and they hung that up in here while uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young were doing Deja Vu. So that's mm. how long that curtain's been in this room. Oh man, yeah, has like, it been washed? Probably not. I'm just kidding. No, it smells like <laughs> like weed. <laughs> All right, we're going to get to your, your selects, yeah. which I'm very excited about because you are taking us back to one of my favorite musical eras, the funky mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are all songs recorded here in Studio D. And here's a clip of the first song. No, I don't want to love you Because I know how you are that's why I've been staying away from you That's why I haven't called you Cause I know you could possess my body 
Okay, that was Auntie Love Song by Betty Davis uh, from her 1973 debut album. Uh, Joe, tell us what your connection is to this song. So this record was introduced to me by um, a local musical hero of mine, Adam Feast. And it was right. Uh, it was around 2007, he um, loaded my iTunes up, and there was all these really cool Prince bootlegs, and then there was four albums by Betty Davis. Yeah. And I remembered her name from the Miles Davis autobiography, uh-huh. which I had read as a kid. So I knew that she was married to Miles, and I remember her being the one that exposed Miles to, um, you Jimmy know, all, Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix and, and Sly Stone yeah. and... Uh, and so I put on this record and then I remember putting on that tune, pressing play. And the first time I heard that, the the bass just like leapt out of the speakers and into my chest. And I was like, holy shit. You know, I hit up Adam. I'm like, who is that? He's like, man, that's Larry Graham. You know, the guy who invented slap bass. And Larry Graham was also the bass player for Sly and the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that led me, this song is actually what led me down a journey of discovering Larry Graham and Graham Central Station. Um, and then I was, you know, a big fan of Gregorico because of Sly and the Family Stone yeah. too. And, um, and I wasn't aware that he produced records. Well, the, yeah, there's a lot of, um, like the entire, I feel like the entire Bay Area funk scene is on this record. So there's Larry Graham and Greg Erico. There's Neil, Neil Schoen, who was in Santana and Journey. Yeah. There's the Pointer Sisters. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Tower of Power. And I think Sylvester too. Sylvester and Pointer Sisters, I think we're both... Doing backup vocals on "Game Is My Middle Name." I think it's the it is the funkiest track on the record. Yeah, she has such an edge to her, like oh, a yeah. rawness that kind of you know permeates the rest of the record. And this was like almost like the smoothest, even though it's just some like hard driving funk. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, lo- I love this track. And Larry Graham is still, without a doubt, the baddest slap bass player of all time. Everybody could use a little bit more low end in their slap bass tone. Just, just saying. Except for Mono Neon, he's got plenty of it. And I like that. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't know um, was that she had written all the songs on on this record. I when I first heard Betty Davis, I actually had a little bit of trouble with her voice because mm-hmm. it's Same. so. It's very gravelly, which is, you know, people do that and it's very sexy. But I don't know. There was something about her voice that I didn't connect with it at first. Mm -hmm. But just everything else about what she does, Mm -hmm. like her whole persona, just how she's just so aggressively sexual and just aggressively (laughs) her. How can I not like that? Whenever we talk about female musicians, I always hate talking about like the romantic associations with other more famous Mm -hmm. musicians. But it's hard not to with her because she was married to Miles Davis. And just like a litany of other people. uh, Yeah, she dated Hugh Masekela before Before Miles Davis. I think she... She dated Jimmy too, right? And Miles Davis accused her of having an affair, which she denied. And I would think that if you did have an affair with Jimi Hendrix, you would not deny that. (laughs) So that's why I believe that she did not. Miles and Jimmy still were trying to work together. Yeah, I mean, that telegram that they sent to Paul McCartney was dated... I thought that was 1970. I mean, the, the year yeah. he died. So they wanted to make a record. It was going to be Jimmy and Tony Williams and Miles, and they wanted Paul McCartney to be a bass player. And it was signed by Miles, Tony, and and Jimmy. Wait, uh, why didn't that happen? Because Paul was on vacation or something. I, it was around the time that the Beatles were breaking up. So I think Paul was like probably just knee deep in some alcohol and 
just like drowning out his sorrows. Oh man! I, but he claims he was like on vacation. He didn't get the telegram in time or something. I was Could on you vacation. That? <laughs> it's on vacation, mate. <laughs> <laughs> been you, a... did, you missed the telegram from Miles Davis, <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> and Tony yeah. Williams because yeah. you were having yeah. a drink on the beach. Yeah. Oops. I mean, he was like the biggest pop star of yeah. the world yeah, at the time. Say, and then no one ever heard from him ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Should have answered the telegram. Snooze, you lose. Sorry, Paul. Here's someone who didn't miss the telegram from Miles Davis. <laughs> All right, that was Butterfly by Herbie Hancock from the 1974 album Thrust. This is my favorite track on this album. It's very, very different from the other three tracks on the record. And to me, this one, it soars, right? It's like the space journey that is depicted on the album cover. Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah, especially in the solo section. Yeah, and Herbie Herbie Hancock is our pilot. And to me, Benny Maupin is the butterfly. (laughs) You know, I've always thought of the butterfly as as Bill Summers, as the Congo. Oh, who's your butterfly, Dan? I don't know. I mean, isn't Herbie the butterfly? I see why you would say Benny is the butterfly. Yeah, it's kind of floating up above. But I always think of the, you know, the response. So there's like the call and the response in the chorus, right? Uh huh. So there's boo da da do da do da. That's the butterfly to me, and that's Bill Summers. That's the conga drum. You have a special connection with this song. Tell us about it. Um, so this tune, so to be honest, my special connection really is with the live version of this, which was mixed in this room. Um, but the, you know, it all comes from this, this original intent, which was probably the second time they ever played the song was this version that we hear. Um, and I wasn't aware that that song was recorded in here until recently when I had Mike Clark here. And so when I first moved here in 2003, uh, my oldest brother, Adrian, was living out here at the time. And the first time he took me to Amoeba Records, I f- bought this album on CD and we put it on. Um, and, and I, you know, I had the album on record growing up and everything, but we were listening to it and we probably had some mind altering influences as well, you know, being in California where everything's green. <laughs> and we, uh, he drove me out to the Pacific Ocean, which I had never seen before. And we were listening to this song in both. Oh, perfect. Just yeah, like freaking it. out over how funky it was. So I was thrilled when Mike was here to, because I was under the impression that Headhunters was made up here and Thrust was done downstairs. And then Mike told me, he was like, no, no, no we did actual proof and palm grease downstairs but we did butterfly and spankily up here in d and he showed me like this is where my drum set was set up which is the opposite side of where my drum set is set up which i probably should change everything up now that you Mike probably told me. should <laughs> herbie was set up in the middle of the room probably exactly where my roads is and they were all facing each other so it's special to hear that yeah yeah it's awesome um, okay, so clearly you love Herbie Hancock because that's who the next song is from. Mm-hmm. 
All right, that was Steppin' In It from Herbie's 1975 album Manchild. It is super reminiscent of Chameleon, so uh-huh. I think that's what drew me in. And and when I f- found this tune, I was uh, it was really the summer before my senior year of high school, and my buddies and I thought it would be hilarious to make a movie of us just fucking getting stoned and doing dumb shit around town. And so I just remember we were like all hanging out and my buddy was on the ground with his camera shooting up and we were all circling the camera and this tune was playing and we were all giggling just like my brother Adrian and I because we were like, this is so funky. It was when, and it's when the harmonica solo comes on and when you realize, like, well, that's uh, that's undeniably <laughs> Stevie Wonder playing harmonica on it. And when he go when when the riff goes back to that that section that is like the chameleon bass line, so I'd call that like the A section. When it goes back to that and and Stevie continues to solo over it, it's so rhythmic and it just like bites you and we were all like dancing not to the drum beat but to herbie solo and when we watched the video we thought it was gonna be like the funniest shit but it was just like really dumb but the music was awesome (laughs) where's this video oh i don't know i I hope somebody still has it Um, all right, so let's go to your next song selection, which is from an album released the same year, recorded in the same studio with much of the same band. You know some people pray for wealth, but I don't even want my help. And when I get on my knees to pray, All right, that was God Made Me Funky by the Headhunters from their 1975 debut, Survival of the Fittest. Joe, was there something specific you wanted to say about the drums on this record? Okay, God Made Me Funky, which is like, you know, one of the most sampled drum beats of all time, that drum intro, Mm -hmm. played by the incredible Mike Clark. That's my boy. The day that I had Mike Clark over here, um, I had no idea that that record was made in this building, let alone this room. I don't know why I never even really thought about it. But, of course, David Rubinson produced it. They came in, made that record. They cut this tune, and this is all according to Mike. And when Mike counted off the tune, as soon as they went into it, the snare on his snare drum broke. It, it stopped working. And... They still played through the tune because, you know, tape cost money and you can't stop. And the take was so happening that David Rubinson wanted to use use this this take, but Mike didn't want to use it because it sounded like he was playing on a tom instead of a snare drum, right? Because that's what a you know a snare drum sounds like when the snare's off. It sounds like one of the other toms. Um but they came up with this idea of reamping it. Reamping is a type of technique, like if you maybe if you record some guitar direct through a mixing console, but you wanted to have that sound of it being in a room with an amplifier, you can reamp it through a guitar amplifier. And so you can send the signal out of the board to the amplifier after it's been played and then stick a microphone in the room mic the amp and it's as if the guitar player plugged into the amp. So what they did is they reamped the snare drum through a speaker and they put that inside of a trash can 
and then they mic'd the trash can, and that's the snare drum sound on God Made Me Funky. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. What a crazy solution. Yeah, it's a fucking awesome idea because, you know, the trash can is metallic and it rattles. Yeah. And it's got, you know, a high-pitched frequency that can somehow marry to the sound of that drum because he probably had it tuned up, cranked up pretty high for playing funk music. But I had no idea of any of that. And he was telling that story to Will Blades and to me, and we were just like... What? <laughs> like, that's that's you know, amazing. One of the most sampled drum beats ever, and you had no idea that there fucking wasn't even trash a snare. can. That's fucking trash can <laughs> snare drum. Man. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And I love that tune, Paul Jackson. I mean, he's one of the baddest bass players. And that's what made me pick up the bass guitar and start learning how to play bass, was learning all his bass lines, especially this tune. Who's singing on this? That's Paul Jackson. Uh, who's singing backup vocals? Um, I'm not sure who's singing background vocals. I can tell you who's is singing backup. Is it the back- Pointer Sisters? Yes. Of course it is. It's <laughs> such an incestuous circle of musicians. I know, it really was. The Bay Area is still like that. <laughs> You know, it's such a, it's a, it, it has a big city reputation. This this whole area, Oakland and San Francisco, but it really is just a small town. Especially, it gets even smaller amongst the art and music community. Yeah, yeah, you you're all playing with each other all the time. Yeah, I think that's, it's awesome. Isn't that, that's how you build a scene. Yeah, most definitely, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool. And now I'm trying to capture that scene in here. I think you're doing all right. Yeah, well, I hope so. You know, it, it, we haven't. The music industry as a whole hasn't really shined a light on the Bay Area and probably since that time, since like the late 70s. I mean, there's some amazing stuff that's come out of here, but uh, it's it's funny. The Bay Area just kind of gets left in the dust. You know, it's not Los Angeles and it's not New York. Shit, even New York is kind of getting left behind in the recording industry. You know, it's it's all L.A. Mm-hmm. and Nashville. You know? Well, we don't have as many studios as, as we used to, right? Yeah. Um, because the record away. plan is gone. Fantasy Studios closed, what, in 2018? Well, yeah, this different is... first still here, and this is here. But the only reason this place is still here is because it's in the Tenderloin. Nobody wants to develop this area. So people kind of frown upon the Tenderloin. I mean, you guys probably saw the scene as you were walking up. I find it charming. It's tender as you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it you know, this 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 20 square block radius is actually the most diverse area in in San Francisco. Oh, is it? It has the oh, without question. It has the largest population per capita of senior citizens, of children, and disabled people. To me, because I've been here six or seventeen years, this I've watched the city change. To me, this still feels like San Francisco. Yeah. Well, thanks for preserving it, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the the last song on your list. I know we can make it. I know that we can. I know that we can work it out. All right, that was Yes We Can Can by the Pointer Sisters from their 1973 self-titled debut. The song was actually written, and you can probably tell, by Alan Toussaint. Toussaint. Mm-hmm. Um, first recorded by Lee Dorsey in 1970, but I love the Pointer Sisters version so damn much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's that's the version. Yeah. Um, yeah, this song is special to me for a couple of different reasons. 
one, it's like arguably one of the funkiest lyrical riffs that the chorus to learn. And it's um, very hard. Oh, it's super tricky. Yeah. Yes, we can't. I know we can't, can't. Yes, we can't, can't. Oh, why can't we? If you want to. Yes, we can't, can't. You got it. Yeah. I had to learn that. Uh, I used to play drums in this band, this local band called Hot Einstein, which uh, plays predominantly covers. They actually play up in North Beach all the time at um, Tupelo. Uh, but I played with them when they first started, and uh, a singer I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Betty Davis, Karen Page, was the lead singer of it at the time. And uh, and all the fellas in the band, we all had to learn the background vocals. We, I can't tell you how many times we <laughs> messed oh, no. it up and we're just dying laughing. It's like a tongue twister. Yeah. You know? But once you get it, man, it feels so good. It's like solving a you know a really difficult math problem or something. <laughs> you know? Um, and the tune is, you know, is is incredibly funky, and uh, and so, it's such a Bay Area sound. But Alan Toussaint, who I'm a giant fan of, not only as as an artist, but of, of his productions, like the mm-hmm. the Dr. John record with the meters backing him up. Mm-hmm. I um, recently rediscovered this song a couple of years back when I was. Uh, I was recording an album at um, United in Hollywood with this rock and roll band, Lee Bob and the Truth. We were in Studio A. In United is also, you know, a crazy historical studio. We were recording Studio A, and um, when we came in for day two, Studio B, their door was open. There was a piano player. There was two piano players playing, and I went to the receptionist and I asked, um, you know, "Who's playing?" In uh, Studio D or Studio B, sorry, all these letters to think about, and he like looked at the sheet. And he was like, uh, "Some somebody uh, named Alan Toussaint." I was like, "Alan Toussaint is in in the other room," <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah." And it was like, "Who's the other piano player?" He's like, "Van Dyke Parks." And I was like, "Get the fuck out of here!" <laughs> and uh, so we know they're in there, and we all just like we're like standing in the hallway, like. <laughs> looking at the pictures but just really just listening to what was going on and and then we went into our session and we were we were recording some songs but it was a trip because the night before we were referencing that Dr. John record that Alan produced um and cuz we were trying to get a similar vibe to like the second track on that record and uh I excused myself from the session. I think they were doing some overdubs, and I walked out in the hallway, and there he was. And I was like, "Oh my god!" And I, you know, walk up to him and and introduce myself and just tell him what a huge fan I am. And uh, and he was like, "Well, what are you guys doing today?" And I was like, "Man, we're making this record, and we're from the Bay Area, and we were actually just listening to this record he produced." He's like, "Oh, that's cool." He was like, "Can I can I come in?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." <laughs> no, sorry, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, it's a closed session, man. Sorry. Alan. <laughs> so we we walk into Studio A. I walk in with fucking Alan Tucson, and like I'm like, "Hey, fellas!" And they all turn around. They're like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> and we all just chat with him and and talk in a circle for a bit, and uh, and he was just so sweet. And then. And then he left, and then he died a month later to that day. Oh. Yeah. And uh, it, so, and, and it was after he died, you know, I was reminiscing about meeting him, and then it just kind of led me on this journey of just checking out all his tunes. And I always knew this song, um, because that, that song, I, or that version, the Pointer Sisters version I had learned for that band was years before I met Alan. Um, but I didn't know he wrote it. And I, I had never heard his version of it before. And, mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it was really special to 
to be led back to it that way. Yeah. And then um, I got so into the song that I started teaching it all the time to the funk classes that I would teach at the jazz school. Or oh, the how California did they handle the chorus? Uh, they did okay. Yeah. It, was, it was the college kids. Um, it was still the same thing. It was like a tongue twister. And so we had to like slow it down. I was like writing out the rhythms on mm-hmm. the board. And yeah, it was pretty funny. I never thought I'd be like uh teaching you know like academically teaching the pointer sisters and in a music school but of course you know i I, that's what i gotta do you gotta keep the funk alive yeah (laughs) so for bringing it back to the pointer sisters there's an album that i want to bring up that's the the one after this Mm -hmm. which is steppin um because a lot of a lot of the musicians that were on Manchild and Thrust were also on that record. That's right. Um, and uh, so I was listening to, just in preparation for this show, I was listening to nonstop kind of uh, Cheney Do. Because mm-hmm. um, that's the song that has uh, Herbie and Paul Jackson on bass and Bill Summers on percussion. got a very uh, watermelon man vibe with the with that kind of pitched up vocal hit at the end of each phrase yeah which is like it's usually the reverse or the reverse it's the it's like the um i guess i'll use the analogy of like a question and an answer if the question is blowing into the bottle it's like it's the answer to it when he sings off of it. That's what that intro to Watermelon Man, you know, it's like with a beer bottle. Mm-hmm, I think he's mm-hmm. doing the same thing there. So he blows and then yells off of it, which is an African uh, mm-hmm. tradition. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah. I love the way it sounds. Yeah. You talked about this before we recorded, how difficult it was for you to choose five because yeah. there's so many awesome songs and albums recorded here. Yeah. Um, and you had a lot of runner-ups. Yeah. Which unfortunately we didn't get to. That's uh, all good. Um, but and I forgot about it was ninety three till infinity that was done in here. Um Souls of Mischief. Great, great hip hop tune. Not sure if you know anything. Love those guys. Yeah. All right, so ordinarily um, we're recording at Bar Shiru in Oakland, um, and Dan gives us two record picks, usually something old, something new. Um, we're not there today. We're here uh, at Wally Hyder Studios slash Hyde Street Studios. So we figured we'd shout out some of the awesome recordings that were made here, um, in addition to all the ones that Joe gave us. So mine is Spill the Wine by Eric Bergman Moore. All right, so that's actually from the very first uh, War record. Um, I love War. This song is one of the songs that I actually remember the first time I heard it. 
Um, I think I was listening to Casey Kasem's Countdown or something, and he was talking about the story of the song. What he didn't mention was that Eric Burden was really tripping on acid. Um, but he did talk about um, someone spilling wine on the on the console of the control room. Yeah. Um, and that that's how that's how the lyrics "Spill the Wine" came up came mm. about. But I remember hearing the hearing the story before I heard the song. For as long as the song has been with me, though. I will forever associate it with the pool scene in Boogie Nights now. Like, oh, I think... Oh, yeah. <laughs> thousand percent. Oh, yeah. I, 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 just, I can't not percent, picture yeah. the pool scene. Great music supervision. Perfect, yeah, perfectly placed song. Yeah. So, Dan, what's your song? So, mine, I, I had a, a, a bit of, as we all did, I think a bit of a tricky time narrowing it down to one. But um, for me, you know, uh, Broke Down Palace by the Dead... American Beauty was the first studio record I owned by the Grateful Dead in, in high school, and I just have really strong memories of, of that album. And, uh, and it's bro- their best studio album. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia, like, at the peak of their writing prowess. Um, the lyrics are beautiful. The harmonies are amazing. The harmonies are so pretty. It's it's so it's really pretty. fantastic. And you know what? How can you hate on a song where the last minute and a half is like doo doo doots? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doo 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 doo. You know? Yeah. For a minute and a half. Everybody in the building at that time was like, so it was like the dead and it was Crosby, Stills, Nash. I mean, if and they were all like playing on each other's records. So you can definitely hear the influence of those guys on the dead, you know, on that, oh, on that particular percent. It's so folky yeah. Yeah. in a way that, that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young yeah. kind of brought to the forefront of, of that, of, yeah. you know, American rock and roll music of the time for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only time you ever really heard the Dead sing like that, too. Yeah. That's um, to me. That's what makes that album their best studio record. The singing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, it's that, the only and, record where I can really get into their singing. Yeah, and I didn't realize I, I did not know this that Mickey Hart's dad used to be or was one of the Dead's first managers. Stole a lot of money and, from them and signed oh, them to no. Universal without them knowing, and yeah. like took the money and ran. Yeah, oh, that's fucked man. up. That, yeah, and that's Your why. Your own father. Yeah, and that's why Mickey left the band for a little while and then then they went and did that they they toured europe because they needed to make money yeah and that's to me that's the best shit the dead did was the europe 72 which was mixed in this room yeah uh that we were sitting in but that they play with so much like energy they're fierce on that those live recordings and they sound so good on yeah that. 72 73 is just like yeah i mean remarkable remarkable music and for me there truly is no more iconic san francisco band than the grateful Dead. yeah that's true yeah most definitely 
Yeah, I I used to play in Mickey Hart's band called the Mickey Hart Band. Uh, uh, this was 2012 through 2014. Oh, crazy! So I toured all around the country in Canada and Israel as well. Wow! Um, playing all these tunes, and we would close most nights with Broke Down Palace, oh, which cool. was such a great great thing. And yeah. a couple times we got to play with Bob Weir, which was really great. My favorite song to always do was China Cat Sunflower. That's how I auditioned for Mickey's band was with that tune. So it was really cool to play with Bob and Mickey at the Fillmore playing China Cat Sunflower. And that was 2013. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, um, great. Yeah, great experience. That was um, a lot of fun. Mickey's a wild man. He's, he's, he's a trip. I'll tell you some stories off the microphone. <laughs> Actually, you, there's a great story about this <laughs> studio with Mickey Hart. Uh, and, uh, and I knew this story with him, and I'll just tell you, because they were telling me about it when I first came to look at the building. They're like, oh, you used to play with Mickey? They're like, well, you probably want to know something about your room. There's, and I knew this story from Mickey, too, so it was funny to hear it from them. But there was there's a story that Mickey was recording a record in here. I think it was his first album, which is a really cool record with Tower of Power's horn section on it. Hmm. Uh, and they were recording in here. And Mickey was getting fed up with Wally Hyder always tearing down his sessions because they would have a different band in here during the day. And Mickey would be in here at night. So Mickey hired a bodyguard with a samurai sword to stand out in front of this fucking door right here and not let anybody in. That's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I heard that from two people, one from the man himself. So it's true. Oh, it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny. All right. I hate that we've come to the end of our show, but we have come to the end of our show. But before we do, I have one closing question to you, Joe, which is how can people find your music online? You can find it everywhere that you listen to music. So if it's YouTube or Spotify or Tidal, Apple Music, you can buy it on vinyl and go to my website. Um, my company's called Track Tribe, and the slogan is music everywhere because we mean it. Music is everywhere. You do mean it. Yeah. All right. If you want to listen to the songs we discussed on this or any of the episodes this season, we've got an active Spotify playlist you can follow. We'll post a link on the socials. We are Select5 on Instagram and Select5Show on Twitter. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm your host, Pam Torno. Our producer is Kate Sullivan. Technical producer is Brian Douglas, who also composed our theme song. Graphic design by Tim Palmer. And our partners in this whole endeavor are Dan Gar and Shireen Raza, the owners of Bar Shiru, located at 1611 Telegraph Avenue. Follow them on Instagram at Bar Shiru Oakland. Until next time, always be listening. Peace on Earth. Take care, everybody.